share what you're doing and kind of your experience in the industry and uh, so forth. So I'd love um, first for anybody that's listening or watching to please like, share, subscribe. Um, we have lots of content at globalhempassociation.org and on our YouTube channel and Spotify, uh, Google, there's lots of podcast opportunities. Anyways, uh, Joe, I'm really thrilled to introduce you and to have you on today and kind of get your background and experience in the industry. Um, I'd love for you to give a quick rundown about who you are and what you've done and how you got into this. How did you, how did you start in this industry? Uh, well, you know, things in our lives kind of uh, dictate what happens next. And I was uh, living in Belize, building roads and bridges and low-income housing uh, mm -hmm. for refugees. And um, the government changed. We lost all our contracts and uh, you know, all my road and bridge equipment was left down there. And I came back to just kind of wait and see what was going to happen with the government change. And so I go back down five or six weeks later and all my equipment has been scavenged. So I lost, I don't know, a couple million dollars worth of equipment in the jungles of Belize. <clears throat> so thinking that was one of the worst things that could ever happen in my life. Um, I come back and try and decide, you know, okay, what am I going to do next? And in the meantime, I was reading these newspapers, um, old back in the 1940s. And I came across this article that said F.G. Clay resigns from the Kentucky Hemp Growers Co-op. And so I was like, you know, we've got a, the Kentucky Tobacco Growers Co-op, but what's this and you know it said he was he was resigning at the behest of president roosevelt to come to washington dc and run the hemp for victory program so at, uh, i'd heard about the hemp for victory program um and i knew gatewood galbraith who ran for governor three or four times in kentucky on the uh marijuana or really cannabis um, platform so i knew about you know, cannabis, but back then, uh, hemp and marijuana were just as exactly the same thing. If you said something to somebody mentioned the word hemp, it, it hemp and marijuana were synonymous. So anyway, so I, that piques my interest. So, um, I went to the secretary of state's office in Kentucky to, um, to ask, you know, if they had the records and he looked at me like, you know, uh, this guy, you know, what's he up to, you know, marijuana. And, uh, and so uh, he looked in the computer and he said, uh, he said, oh, we don't, you know, we don't have it. It's not, not in here. And I went, are you sure? And he went, yeah. I said, nope. And so now I'm like, okay, it's a dead end, you know. And there's another one of those moments where, in your life, things, you know, turn out different because I left the Secretary of State's office and walked up to the, um, or, you know, walked out the door and walked down the hall and they've got these, in at the Capitol, they've got all these big wide halls with marble all over them. And so I'm 15, 20 feet down the hall and I hear something and I don't know what, you know, I'm like, well, you know, so I turned around and stuck my head in the door. I said, did you say something? And he said, yeah, he said, what year was that? And I went, I, don't, I would have been like the 1940s. 
And he went, oh, he said, that wouldn't be in our records here anyway. That would be in our, down in the archives. And he said, and this is a Friday. So he says, give me your name and phone number. And if I find something next week, I'll let you know. And so I did. <laughs> so Monday morning, nine o'clock, the phone rings. And it's like, I found, I found, I found, you know, he's all excited. And I went, I said, whoa, who is this? He said, Jerry over the Secretary of State's office. He said, I found all the director for the Kentucky Hemp Growers Co-op. I was going, you're kidding. He says, no, I got, he said, I got everything. And so I hopped in the car. I was drove right there and you know, looked at all the tax records and the original corporation records. And they had like 17 people signed the original corporation papers. I'm like, I've never seen. And I guess maybe in associations they do that, but I'd never seen uh, where you had so many people signed on to a, a corporate document. <clears throat> so I took it to a friend of mine whose dad owned the largest family owned tobacco company uh, in the world. And his dad was real big in agriculture back in the forties. And so went to him and showed him and he went, hey, he said, this is who's who in the agriculture industry back in the forties. And now I'm like, okay, something, something's up here. So that's kind of what got me started. And it's like that uh, saying, you know, you stick your toe in the water, next thing you know, you're up to the ears and alligator. <laughs> so uh, I found out my grandfather grew hemp, uh, you know, that uh, Europe was just getting ready to allow uh, the, all these countries to start growing hemp. France had been growing hemp. Uh, and producing uh, Bible and rolling papers. Uh, Canada was getting ready to, they were petitioning the Canadian government because they're part of the EU also mm -hmm. and um, through England. So uh, all this stuff was going on. I collected all this uh, information. And then another seminal moment, uh, this was in this, I think spring or summer of 1994. And uh, not, you know, I don't, I don't sit around and just listen to the radio, but uh, the radio happened to be on and I hear um, Governor Jones is having open door at four, which he opens the doors up. You come in, sign up about what you want to talk to him about and anybody can go in and talk to him. So uh, I, uh, I end up going over there and I wasn't going to tell him I wanted to talk to him about hemp. And so I said, I want to talk to him about, you know, because this is when tobacco, all the, the tobacco executives were telling, uh, the they were swearing in front of Congress that they didn't think nicotine was addictive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and I, I saw the writing on the wall <clears throat> that we were going to lose tobacco. And back then you couldn't drive a quarter mile in any direction in Kentucky and not yeah. see tobacco. And, uh, and now what's it 28 years later and or 26 years later, and you, you, you can drive all day long and never see a tobacco patch. And if you do, it's like two or 300 acres. So, uh, so I told him, uh, I wrote down that I want to talk to him about tobacco. So, um, I go in and, uh, I start talking to him. I said, you know, we're losing, we're going to lose tobacco farmers. You know, we're going to have to find an alternative. And he said, well, what are you, what are you proposing? 
And I said, well, governor, I said, you live on one of the biggest hemp farms uh, back in the uh, 1800s and early 1900s, um, you know, in, in the county here. And I said, we've got a rich history. My grandfather grew hemp. And then I started showing him the uh, European Union's rules and all these pictures and uh, this equipment that I'd found in Paris, Kentucky. Um, I showed him this book about the hemp history of Kentucky. Um, and I showed him all this stuff. And, uh, and at the end of it, I said, um, Governor, do you have a piece of paper? And he looked at me, oh, yeah, so let me have a piece of paper. And he handed me a piece of paper. <clears throat> and underneath some of this equipment I'd found in Paris, Kentucky, um, there was a, a bunch of uh, fiber underneath of it. So I took that fiber cut it up, beat it up with a hammer and finally turned it into powder. Man, it took forever. But uh, I got one of those uh, paper screens to make paper with and made a sheet of paper. It was like, it rattled. It was like, um, like Bible paper. Sure. And so um, I took that and laid it on his paper and cut out an even uh, square, both of them. And I said, do you have a match? And he's like, oh yeah, <laughs> he gives me a match. And I light his, the, you know, regular writing paper up and it burns and leaves this big crust there. And then I lit the, um, the hemp paper I made and it went poof, it turned into this like real fine, you know, tiny gray speck. Yeah. He looked at that and he went, whoa. And in hindsight, I don't know why I did it, but I think that, kind of made an impact on him sure um, and i don't know why because it really in retrospect it didn't mean anything <laughs> and so, it caught his attention well yeah so but then he looked at me and he said well joey said um if you were me he said if you were governor he said what would you do and um i said well governor if it was me i would form a task force to look into seeing mm -hmm. if what i'm telling you is true or not and he said, Joe, I said, I have no, I, no doubt that what you're telling me is true. And, um, and I said, well, Governor, it's not really that. It's that it's public perception. If you have a task force, then it gives validity to what they say. Sure. And it's just not you saying it. And he looked at me. He said, Joe, he said, you're exactly right. And he looked at, what was James' last name? He was his uh, agriculture liaison. And he said, James, he said, I want you to work with Joe. And he said, let's let's do this. So that was kind of what really got the ball rolling. Um, and then after that, uh, that, that afternoon or the next day, uh, I'd, I'd been working with uh, a buddy of mine, Dave Spalding, and uh, Andy Graves was a guy that he worked with that was a big vegetable farmer at the time. And uh, so I, t I told Dave, and this was before I met with the governor, but I told Dave, I said, we got to go start collecting seeds because, you know, they're destroying all the wild hemp out there. You know, they had the, the marijuana eradication or the cannabis eradication program and where they were giving uh, the sheriffs or police, state, whoever it was, they would give them so much per plant that they destroyed. Goodness, yeah. So Dave knew a bunch of the farmers because he had worked for the University of Kentucky and that's how he introduced me to Andy because Andy had a bunch of hemp growing on his farm. <clears throat> so uh, met Andy, we collected seeds, you know, then I meet with the governor 
And then we meet with Andy's dad, who was the um, uh, emeritus chairman of the board of National City Bank. He was like a pillar of the community and he had just retired. So uh, we go in and meet with him. And I was telling him, you know, I met with the governor, he's gonna do this task force. And, um, you know, we found the Kentucky Hemp Growers Co-op. And, um, you know, I wanna tell you about hemp and, and you know, what, what, what's happening in the world. And he looked at me, he says, he said, you don't have to tell me anything about him. And he pointed over to the wall and there's a picture of him as a 16 year old kid with this suit on and this little fedora type hat out in a field weighing up hemp with one of the field hands. And uh, he said, he said, I grew him. Uh, he said, I harvested the, the crop when my dad died when I was 16. Uh, oh, he said, so what do you want? I said, I'd like for you to be the, the uh, chairman of the board of the Kentucky Hemp Growers Co-op. And Andy's gonna be the president because he was the president of the Fayette County Farm Bureau. So he was known by all the farmers. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'll be the executive director and do the day-to-day -day stuff. So that is what kicked off the whole thing. And a, a side story that's just, it's just hard to believe, but during the war, um, Andy's dad, Jake, who is now, you know, was now he's the uh, chairman of the board of the Kentucky Hemp Growers Co-op. Uh, his dad had, um, uh, done a, um, he'd collected all the hemp seeds for um, in Kentucky, Illinois, Tennessee, uh, Missouri, he'd collected all the hemp seeds. So he had wow. this tobacco warehouse just full of, of hemp seeds. And so the government came in and confiscated for the war effort. And they, um, they took the seed and gave it to the Kentucky Hemp, the, they formed the Kentucky Hemp Co-op in order to redistribute Jake's father's seed. And now Jake is the chairman of the board of the of organization his. that took his, that distributed his dad. And I mean, it's just, it's so, no accident. it's hard to believe. Yeah, there are so, no accidents, right? So, uh, yeah, and then, okay, so this starts rolling. We're getting, you know, we'd been getting, press we were going to farm bureau meetings we were going to um uh county fairs uh you know any place where you know something where we could help educate the people and so we were getting a lot of pr and a buddy of mine was a friend of woody harrelson's and uh, he had told woody about what i was doing so one day my phone rings and uh it's like woody and i was like you know, but when my son answered the phone and uh, he, what he said, uh, is Joe Hickey there? And he was going, um, he said, yeah, I said, this is Joe. And Joe was young then, you know, and Woody's going, well, maybe your dad. <laughs> and so Joe said, who's calling? He says, Woody. And so uh, Joe comes in and I'm thinking somebody's playing a prank on me. So I, you know, answer the phone, it sound like Woody. And so uh, we talked for about an hour and he said, well, I'd like to come in and meet you. And this is on a Tuesday. And I went, sure, you know, and he said, what's a good time? I said, anytime. He said, what about Thursday? So he comes in Thursday and I pick him up. And um, when we first met, we just, because I have eight, seven brothers and a sister. So I grew up in a big family. And another kind of ironic thing that happened, my, my younger brother, Bob, had passed away a few months earlier. And 
he was this guy that when he, he walked in the room, you just felt his presence. He was just that, he was just the kindest, nicest. I mean, it's just hard to describe the kind of heart and soul that he had. And here comes Woody and it's like Bob coming back. I mean, it was, it, it, I get cold chills thinking about it right now. But, uh, so uh, that evening, Woody called his wife up, Laura and Denny and said, uh, I want you to meet Joe you know, you guys fly in tomorrow. So they flew in and stayed for, I think, three days and then left. And when Woody left, he said, you know, let, let's start a business. Let, let's do whatever we need to do. I, I'm here to help. So that's led to a 26-year friendship, I guess. And um, so we did a lot of things in the meantime. Uh, we did a, um, a survey that showed 76 percent of Kentuckians strongly favored, somewhat or strongly favored letting farmers grow hemp. Mm. Uh, Woody uh, and I came up with the idea of planting the hemp seeds. Uh, planted four hemp seeds because five hemp seeds was uh, uh, a felony. <clears throat> so uh, we orchestrated that whole thing in Kentucky in 96. And um, and then, so that trial went to 2000 and Woody was finally found not guilty. And that's, it's just a longer story than what we've got time for here today. Yeah. But um, I will tell a story that at the end that I like to share with people is uh, I had Governor Nunn, who was a friend of mine. He was governor when Nixon was president. He was a right wing um, law and order uh, governor, Republican governor. So. Uh, and he's an older gentleman then. He knew about hemp and everything, and um, and he knew about Woody's trial. And I asked him, I said, would you do the closing statement at Woody's trial? And he went, sure. And uh, so he's doing a closing statement, and I'd given him a, a hemp candy bar. And so uh, he has it, and he's, he's, you know, telling the jurors, yeah. First of all, he's telling the jurors that, you know, you can't, um, you know, uh, you know what jury notification is. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he's basically saying, he's looking at jurors and going, look, you know, if you, if, you know, they're growing it everywhere in Europe and everything. And so this law is not a fair law. So, you know, if you, if you think that the law is not fair, then you, you're the last bastion uh, for, um, you know, adjudicating what's a, a a, a law that's that's wrong and you can't do that but he's a governor the judge is what's the judge is going to do the judge is going to say quit saying that but so he let him you know get away with that <clears throat> but he was giving his arguments and uh he said well ladies and gentlemen jury he says um he said I, he reaches his jacket and he said i've got this hemp bar with me and uh he said with permission of the court and he didn't ask permission he just assumed it as a governor he said i'm gonna take a bite of this so he takes a bite and um, he sits there and chews it up. He's looking around at the jurors and everything. And he's going, um, well, ladies and gentlemen, jury, he said, I got it on me. And he said, I got it in me. He said, so if you're going to convict this man right here, he said, you're going to have to convict me too. And you could see the jurors were just like, uh, <laughs> okay. And, uh, and then he closed it out by saying, uh, he was standing right next to the, the prosecutor's desk. And he was going, ladies and gentlemen, and he said, my esteemed colleague, uh, 
Tom Jones um, says that, because he had already given his closing argument, he said, Mr. Harrelson's simply here because he's trying to legalize marijuana. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, he said, if I thought that for one second, and he slammed his hand down on the table real hard, and Tom just, just startled him because he's down writing. He said, I'd be sitting at this table right here. And that's how he ended it. And so he, he walks out, comes down, sits down, the juror goes away. And uh, it's funny because they, they, they come back into the, to the uh, courtroom and I looked down at my watch and it's exactly 420. <laughs> and I, I'm watching them and they're all looking as they come in, they're looking at us sitting there at the table and I leaned over and I said, Woody, I said, it's not guilty. And he said, how could you possibly know that it's not guilty? And I said, well, they're looking at you. They, if, if it was guilty, they wouldn't be looking at you. And um, he said, really? And I went, yeah. He said, we'll see. So it was not guilty. And um, so that was, the, you know, that kind of, in, in the meantime, we had been talking to legislators about trying to get a bill passed. And they said, well, we're not going to do anything until, you know, because people still had the idea that hemp and marijuana were the same thing. And they said, until you educate the public about it, we're not going to do it. So that was the reason that Woody funded that uh, University of Kentucky research that showed 76% of the people were somewhat or strongly in favor. So we took that and we were going to the legislators. We didn't get the bill passed in 2000, but in 2001, the year after Woody's trial, or really it was only a few months after Woody's trial. And um, so we went to the legislators and we were, you know, we're making some good headway and we met with the, the president of the Senate and uh, Tom, what was his name? Um, anyway, uh, no, David Williams. So <clears throat> David said, well, if you guys can get the votes, uh, I'll let it come to the floor. Knowing we couldn't get the votes. He knew we couldn't. So we get the votes, we get more than what we needed and he was not letting it be heard. Oh. So I go see the governor and uh, Governor um, Nunn who had helped us out when Woody's trial and I told him, I said, look, you know, uh, David, David said he would let this thing hit the floor and it's not, he's not letting it hit the floor. And he said, uh, do you have the votes? I said, yeah, we've got the votes. He said, are you sure? And I, went, I know we have the votes. And he said, jump in the car. <laughs> so we drive to Frankfurt and uh, go up to David Williams' office and walk in. And he just walks right past the secretary and just, you know, I'm following him. And the lady's turn, she says, uh, no, Pete, Governor, he has somebody in there with him. And uh, Governor looks at her and he said, that's fine. And he said, Joe, just wait here. So I sit down. He walked in the door. And about four or five minutes later, a guy walks out. And then another four or five minutes later, he walks out and he said, let's go. And so we go down the hall and he said, oh, it's going to be heard. Uh, so they, you know, they, we get a vote, it passes, the governor signs it. <laughs> and the one thing that made a difference for Kentucky is I had the forethought of adding one sentence at the end of the bill that said that Kentucky immediately adopts any and all federal rules and regulations pertaining to industrial hemp. And so when the farm bill passed in 2014, and you know, there's a lot of stuff that happened after that. You know, we started a company in Canada, Kenex, that um, we were growing and processing. 
and importing uh, hemp. And so we had developed a seed variety called Denny after Woody's daughter. And so we, um, we had the seed up there and we had this, the basically the company was shut down because we were uh, harassed with uh, customs and DEA about bringing stuff over the border. And uh, they shut the, we were sending live seed to the, to the uh, bird feed industry. And they came back and threatened to, to fine us if we didn't bring back, I don't know, it was five or six loads of, of hemp seed. Uh, and so we filed a suit against them. And, but anyway, so all that, you know, a lot of that went on, but we had the seed in Canada that we had developed. So when the farm bill passed, uh, we met with um, uh, Jamie Comer, who's representative now, but he was the ag commissioner. And uh, we said, well, we've got some seed that we'd like to, um, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to plant. And I said, but it's not, it wasn't in the country yet. And uh, so he said, he said, look, he said, if you have hemp seed and it's in the state, it's legal. I went, okay. So we, um, I, I won't say we smuggled it because we didn't. We just had UPS send it to us. Mm -hmm. And um, so we were, what got us ahead is that when the farm bill passed, we didn't have to get the legislators to come in and say, uh, okay, we're going to have to pass the bill to allow university research and set up all this stuff because we had already uh, adopted federal rules and regulations with that legislation. So we were able to go right at it immediately. So that's that's what got us started. And um, so, but that's the short version of, of what happened. I skipped over a lot of things, but you know, that's how I got started. So when you talk about putting all of your archives together, that's what you're talking about is building this story around right. how, how hemp basically started again in the United States and yeah, who the players were. And that's, yeah. I love this stuff. I love, yeah, knowing. So knowing then where it's been and where it's going, what's the big, you know, what, what should people be paying attention to? You know, well, I think the biggest thing right now, Mandy, is, um, well, what was the last major crop introduced into the into the American agriculture? Soybeans. Soybeans. Back in the it started back when Henry Ford and mm -hmm. George Washington Carver and all those guys were were uh, you know working with soybeans to look at what they could do with it, and it took what 40, 50 years for that to become a mainstream crop. So the historical value of what's going on right now is this is going to be the last major crop ever introduced into um, into the American agriculture. There's just nothing else out there. If there was, we wouldn't have been 40 years waiting on it. Right. And we already had a history of doing it. So we know it'll grow anywhere from Florida to Alaska. And uh, there's different areas that would grow good for fiber. There's different areas that grow good for seed. Um, and, but I think the important thing, knowing the history and, and everything about it, the important thing right now is for the farmers to realize that, you know, this is an agricultural crop. You know, it's not a horticultural crop. It, 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 it can be a horticultural crop, mm -hmm. 
but it's not all farmers aren't horticulturists. So it's to be a mainstream crop, you have to be an agricultural crop. And uh, when this whole thing got sideways, and you know, I'm working with CBD right now, but I say CBD hijacked the hemp industry because um, what happened was that uh, you know we were looking at fiber and seed and and uh, grain, processing it, making food out of it, turning the fiber into car parts. That was our original focus. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, I got a call from um, uh, Josh Stanley, one of the Stanley brothers. And he was going, you know, uh, CBD is going to be, you know, it's going to be the, the big thing in the future. And uh, he was right, because then, you know, uh, what happened is the first couple of years, farmers were kind of like, uh, I, I don't know, you know, you know, I don't know enough about it, so I'm not going to do it. But the farmers that jumped in early made great money. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they were they were probably making somewhere between 20 and $40,000 an acre yeah. early on. When Isolate was selling for thousands of dollars? <laughs> when I first started, Isolate back in, I think it was 2015, was uh, $70,000 a kilo. That same kilo you can buy today for like four or $500. Mm -hmm. But what happened is the same thing that happened in Canada in, I think it was 97 or 98, when Canada legalized hemp uh were there for a couple of years uh the farmers that grew it made some good money and then all these other farmers saw what was going on and so you had all these farmers jumped in and started growing uh hemp for seed and all of a sudden it the market wasn't there for all of the production mm -hmm. and so you had all these farmers now that were stuck with all this seed uh, a lot of them lost a lot of a lot of money in the middle of it. So the exact same thing happened with CBD. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the first couple of years, everything was great. And then I remember it was the spring of uh, 1993, two, two years ago. Uh, I started realizing what I, I was thinking, look, they're growing all this, this CBD material. How much CBD is it going to take? because there's, I mean, I can't believe how much CBD, there was like, I don't know, 30,000 acres or something like that uh, of CBD growing in, uh, in Kentucky. Yeah. And the majority of the crops were CBD. So um, I got to figuring and I said, okay, there's, let's just say there's 300 million people in the United States. If everybody uses a bottle of, uh, a one ounce bottle of 2,400 milligrams, uh, which is probably more than what they would use, but let's just figure that on the high side, if they used a bottle a month, that's uh, 12 bottles per person. So it's 12 times 300 million. Uh, and that gives you how many uh, bottles that you would have to produce. And then I just figured back from there, you know, and I, I was figuring on the, the high side just to, yeah. so, so I get down to the spot where uh, I realized that Kentucky, because when I got down, okay, the number was still big and I was going, okay, that number's too big. But 
even though it's that big, we've only penetrated 10% of the market. So now you have to, to multiply that by 10. And now we were growing enough in Kentucky alone to supply the whole United States, every single man, woman, and child for 10 years in Kentucky alone. And it was growing everywhere. So um, I remember the first, uh, it was um, the Southern Hemp Expo. I spoke there and I think it was in September because I was telling the farmers, you know, I said, if you don't, if you guys don't have a contract and you don't know that it's a solid contract with um, a reputable, uh, you know, firm, then you better be looking at what you're going to do with that crop. And I think people kind of started listening, uh, but it still didn't get, it didn't get out there. You know, actually, I just read something. Uh, was it called PanX or Pan Exchange X or whatever it is? Mm -hmm. um, a quote from uh, whoever the the president is. Mm -hmm. I read it today. She's going, we're growing way too much uh, hemp out there to supply the market. And she was kind of breaking it down. And I was going, well, it only took her two years you know, to catch up. But I uh, well, and I get calls. I actually just had a call today about somebody calling for the same thing. They grew and didn't have a contract and don't know what to do. And I just, my heart goes out to these people because they're losing millions of dollars and all their savings and their farm. And it's, it's, it's a travesty. Yeah, it's a travesty because CBD is not an agricultural crop. Right. CBD is like, it's going to be like uh, cannabis or, you know, marijuana crop. You know, you, it's I always be, say it's like the craft, craft wine or craft beers. Exactly right? Right. We're going to have these craft grows, these boutique grows. They're right. not commodity grows. They're not growing in row crops, agriculture, like you said. No, no, because what we're doing, you know, the company that, I, that I've got right now, uh, we're not going to be buying uh, uh, hemp CBD for CBD on the open market. You know, we're going to we're going to contract with probably three or four farmers to grow everything that we need for production because we're not going to need, you know, a few hundred acres. Right. You know, so we don't need a whole lot. And so we're and we put. What people need to understand, if you're going to start a brand or, or have a company that's going to succeed, you have to have the genetics in there. Uh, you have to pick your genetics so you can have consistency in your product. Because if you don't have consistency in your product, what, what, uh, what it's like is having a key and the lock that has all the different tumblers. And those different tumblers are the amount of, of CBD, THC, CBG, uh, CBN, all the variables, cannabinoids. So one key may slide in there and work for uh, uh, Alzheimer's, and one key might go in there and help with uh, eczema. So it would different keys. So it's different genetics have a different effect that um, that you may want for your company. So it's going to be, you know, it's like tobacco is now. Tobacco is contract grown. You know, these tobacco companies will contract with one farmer. He's growing, you know, 200, 300 acres, and they're getting all the exact same quality that they have where before they were buying anywhere from a quarter of an acre to five acres, and it's all different. And so now they have more consistency in, in their end product than they did before, and that's where it's going. So 
but hemp being an agricultural crop is going to be it's going to be phenomenal. You know, just adding another crop in the rotation of the field for these farmers is going to be great. What are some of the benefits? Can you, like if if well, someone asks, give me five five top benefits to hemp. Well, I mean, the biggest one is what it does for the soil. Is it has a deep taproot, so it gets it breaks the soil up deeper, and it makes it better for crops that follow it. Uh, there was a study in Canada that that if you if you grow hemp and follow it with soybeans, you'll get like a ten to twenty percent increase in yield because uh, hemp is not a host for the cyst nematodes. And that's what attacks soybeans. So it kind of clears the fields out. So the soybeans doesn't have the issue with uh, uh, so bad with the cyst nematodes. Um, and there's so many misnomers about hemp. Uh, oh, uh, it'll grow anywhere. You know, you know, weeds won't grow in it. Um, it will, it doesn't need a lot of water. It doesn't need a lot of fertilizer. Uh, you know, early on you hear all that, but the truth is it's like, tobacco or corn or anything else, you've got to have good ground, you have to have water, you have to have, uh, uh, you know, a good fertilizer, you know, I mean, you need all the things you need for a great crop. So, you know, what I think really hurt the industry early on was all these people saying all these things, you know, I will say hemp is probably more drought tolerant than any other crop. Sure it, you know, it's going to thrive better if it has water. So I, I would think that's probably, you know, the things that people don't know that they should know about uh, hemp. It's, it's just a regular crop, you know? Well, and there's variables, right? I think just like in the CBD space, I'm seeing in the fiber industry, different, different seeds grow different crops for different end use, whether it's the textile industry or the construction or the oil and gas, right? If we're, if we're making biofuels, my understanding is this, the oil content from a hemp seed compared to any other natural fire, natural. Well, that's it. The one thing I'll say is that was one of the things that people talk about is using it for biofuels. But mm -hmm. do you have any idea? Oh, my dog's walking in here with muddy feet out. And so, but what, what you have is, um, that, that distracts me. What, what was I saying? Um, biofuels, we were talking about seed, yeah, biofuels, what, seed grown. No, but you know how much a gallon of hemp seed oil is right now? Oh, somewhere between 25 and $45 a gallon. So it's not really, it's not really an oil that you can use for, it's not cost effective. You know, you may be able to use like they do corn and grind up the whole plant, you know, once you uh, harvest and get the seed out of it and make a biofuel out of it. But um, my contention has always been, we've lost, uh, what do they say, half of our topsoil in the last 200 years. So if we start using our topsoil for something besides food, then we're, you know, if we start, you know, if you start growing millions of acres and using it as fuel, you're basically just robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, that makes sense. This actually came up the other day, this argument of using the seed, you know, if it's being grown for food like soybean or any of these others, 
taking our food source when our people are starving. And that makes sense with our land. I mean, it's- Well, and you know, this really isn't the topic we're on, but you know, if we're talking about sustainability and uh, growing crops, you know, for food, you know, we need to quit growing crops for animals. Right. You know, I mean, in all reality, you know, I mean, if we use that same, those same crops to feed people, we've got more food that would feed the whole world right now. Um, But like I say, that's a different story to get into, but- um, There's a lot of broken, and I'll tell you what, hemp and bringing hemp into this has uncovered a lot of broken. Well- A lot of passions I didn't know I had. Right, well, what, uh, you know, people say that, you know, uh, hemp can do everything. All right, it's the answer to everything. And I said, no, hemp's not the answer to everything. That's, there's no doubt about that. But it sure is a key to a lot of things that can make this world a better place. And, you know, for future- It's an alternative day. solution, right? It's something yeah. we can harvest and grow. And with the, uh, you know, one thing that comes up often is the carbon, you know, the carbon footprint. Um, and the benefit for farmers that hasn't been available or that for the first time now we're sustainable and profitable, right? Usually when I'm in a room with investors and the word sustainable comes up, investors are like, no, we're good because it's, right. we're not going to make money on it. We're now right. actually have that opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the only reason we hadn't made money at it is because the alternative is so much cheaper right now. And, you know, it's like we're, we're, the small town I grew up in, had a, a t-shirt factory, they had a shirt factory, um, they had a dress where they were making clothes and <clears throat> the, the, everybody was buying those clothes and supporting those factories. And this fa- the factories were basically supporting the community. Mm-hmm. And what happened is when, I, I forget who it was, but when all these big industries started going to South America and China and every place else to, to get cheaper uh, manufacturing it cheaper goods then mm-hmm. it just basically killed the local you know we don't you know we used to have guys that made shoes you know mm-hmm. we used to go when you know eight kids nine kids you know we've had the guy that made shoes for all of us mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we had a local grocery store, you know, granddad uh, brought milk to us uh, and eggs, uh, you know, we basically just, you know, it was just like a big community. And now, you know, everything's bought overseas. You know, you got the Walmarts and uh, the big box stores that everybody goes to now and all the, everything's consolidated. It's basically what happened back when you know the industrial revolution mm-hmm. it, there was a fight that nobody knows about uh, there was a group included henry ford george washington carver uh uh was it james hale i think was the guy that was kind of the leader of it but it was called the kimmerji movement and the kimmerji movement was basically you can make anything you can make from a hydrocarbon you can make from a carbohydrate hydrocarbons are just carbohydrates under heat and pressure in millions of years that turned into hydrocarbons. Mm. So they knew that. And so, you know, the bake lights, the, the old phones, the hand, the, the things you hang up, you know, you'd pick up and ring the phone. 
those things were made out of out of plant material. It was bakelite. Wow. So they made plastics out of it. And so their dream was we're going to take the industrial revolution and have it fueled by all these farmers across the whole United States. So you would spread that wealth everywhere. And what happened is the guys that had a lot of money that were could afford to punch a hole in the ground and then build these big giant refineries to uh, to purify it and turn it into fuel and everything else, uh, they could do it so much cheaper. But what it did, it consolidated all that wealth instead of spreading out through the whole country, it consolidated that wealth within you know four or five six families. And so that's basically what's happened with our food industry right now is it's all getting consolidated and, you know, you don't have the small dairy farmers anymore. You know, you don't have the small uh, guys that had gardens that they sold at the farmer's market. You know, that's starting to come back a little bit, but still, you know, we're, you know, we're in, in oh. a serious situation, you know, it's just like technology, you know, when you, when you, uh, concentrate all that in one area you know it cuts off all alter alternatives you know I, I think it's kind of like what's happened with uh the the internet and iphones and everything else is we're all dependent on these satellites and we're all dependent on you know electricity and wires and everything else to keep us connected and you know if we had a sunspot like we had back in 1800s, it wiped out a bunch of the telegraph lines. Mm -hmm. If we had the same thing, it would wipe out uh, our satellites. Mm -hmm. And you know, you couldn't get gas, you couldn't even get groceries. So you, you know, couldn't have access to your money. You couldn't open right. the doors to get to the grocery stores. Everything right. is digital. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, and you know, I'm I'm all for it. I I use you know here we yeah. are right now. So. Yeah. But it's just kind of a scary place to be in. You know, it's kind of like losing electricity in the middle of the winter. Well, look what happened in Texas. I mean, this is just kind of a, sh a small piece or the big, you know, what was it? The land hurricane. I don't remember what it's called that hit Iowa in the Midwest and knocked out the millions of acres in, you know, land and, and right. agriculture. And, you know, us, how dependent we are on technology and what happens in a snowstorm, you know, and now Texas is without power for days because they drop below 20 degrees or, you know, stuff like that. That's just, it's um, an eye opener. What are something, solutions? Something that, um, that I think is other things important for people that are thinking about the hemp industry yeah. is you have to have a constant, uh, you know, product. You have to have a, a, a known uh, supply and a known, um, Man. Well, it, it has to be the same, you know, like if, if you're Toyota and you're going to buy, you know, okay, so if we're going to supply fiber for Toyota, they want to know two things. Are we going to get the same quality every time? And are, is your supply chain enough where we're never going to run out? Mm -hmm. So that's two things right there that if you don't have those things, you know, you're not going to ever have an industry that's going to be sustainable. And so when we talk about growth, I think what you just said is extremely important for people to hear, especially when we get so many people buying or getting into decorticating facilities that are small, pull behind your truck. Is that sustainable? And why not? Yeah, well, uh, well, the other thing, if you're going to do this, you know, the, the 
issue we've always had is it's the chicken and egg thing. You know, Toyota is not going to switch over to natural fibers until they know that they have somebody that's going to be able to process it and supply them with consistent quality and a consistent supply. Right. And nobody is going to build a processing facility until they know that the farmers can provide them with the feedstock for their uh, the manufacturing, you know, for processing. So, you know, it's like, who's going to shoot first? You know, who's going to make the first move? Which that's where it's, it's always been. So what I've told people, the only way that I see that this thing can, that we can get out of this chicken and egg is through like a five or 10 year uh, long-term uh, contract that basically it's, it's great for like, say, we'll just use Toyota or Ford, you know, somebody like that as an example. You go to them and say, look, if we can, if we can guarantee you, you know, over the next five years, and show you that we can ramp up, and you know, you'll start buying, you know, small scale to, from us, and we'll scale up each year. If you're, if you're going to buy from, if you'll sign a contract, it's non-binding. If we don't, if we can't do it, if right. we can't uh, supply you, no harm, no foul. But in the meantime you get all the PR that you're going to help the Kentucky or the, the American farmers uh, by, you know, uh, offering this opportunity for them to, uh, to participate in a new industry. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't cost you anything. Mm -hmm. So to me, that is the way that you start. Then once you have those guys that say, okay, if you can supply us this quality uh, of fiber, and you can show that you can do this, then we'll, we'll do it. Then, then a manufacturer could go in and say, okay, you know, we have this contract with Toyota said they'll buy from us if we can do this. And then he goes to the farmers and uh, starts a co-op or, or gets a group of farmers together and, uh, you know, makes them part of the, of the end product to give them some value added to it and say, look, you know, you guys grow this, we'll process it and get it to them. And then to take it a step further, you know, you have someone 150 miles or 200 miles away that's doing the exact same thing. And you have like five or six of these units. So if, if there's a crop failure in one area, then those other four areas can help supply your supply chain and gives the industry even a more uh, confidence that you can do what you say you're going to be able to do. So well, look at not just not just crop failure, right? What if I mean these parts and equipment, right? If we have a break in our supply chain and we can't get parts from China or from wherever your equipment comes from, um, and you go down and now you can't supply a contract like that, I just I more and more I. I see value in a co-op setting or a type operation, an operation like what you described for multiple reasons and being able to give our rural farmers or small farmers a way to compete on a yeah, bigger scale. Yeah. It's, yeah, so, I love it. Yeah. Uh, but I see, you know, I, I see, a well, great, see a great future for it. Well, I'd love to participate however I can. I want, to, I would love to help put something like this together. Um, talk to me about standards really quick. A lot of people ask all the time, 
you know, well, why isn't, if hemp is so great and there's so many opportunities, why isn't it mainstreamed? If it has the R value that it does for insulation, or if it is stronger or lighter or more sustainable, you know, like claims have been, why isn't it being used? And a lot of conversation is in our groups are focused around these standards, right, that need to be created. What are your, what's your... Well, I, I think it's like any industry, you know, we're, there's new technologies coming out all the time. There's, they're able to, to now uh, cottonize fiber that they can use for, for clothing. Um, you know, there's, there's all these new technologies. The one that we're working on, just it, it works with cannabis, but it works with really any uh, lipid. So, you know, we'll be, we'll be working in the food industry and the cannabis industry with this new technology because it's basically what it does. Uh, we use a lipid and in this case, when it comes to hemp, it'd probably be uh, hemp oil, but it could be MCT oil. It could be uh, olive oil. It could be anything. And, uh, but what we'll be doing is, is we've got these big reactors. We put the oil in and then we'll put the floral material in there or the, the high end buds and um, then basically what we do is we infuse these, uh, mm -hmm. all the cannabinoids, the terpenes and flavonoids. we infuse it actually into the oil. Where right now what you have is um, a CO2 extractor or a uh, uh, ethanol extractor or hexane or something uh, that has all the residual stuff in it. And when you use that, you lose a lot of the flavoroids of the, the cannabinoids and terpenes in the process, mm -hmm. but you end up with a thick tar and you take that tar, heat it up, heat your carrier oil up, mix it together. And now it's floating in there together. And that's why they say, you know, shake your bottle before, you know, mm -hmm. before using it. And if they're filling out of a, a 55 gallon drum, they've mixed up you know, getting continuity in, you know, those 7,040 ounces that's in there, you know, you've got to constantly keep it stirred up and everything. So this process infuses it into it and you're in a, a, a closed uh, system. So you can't, you don't lose any of the terpenes. You don't lose any of the cannabinoids or flavonoids, anything. And we can take, say, we could put some mint in there and we could have a mint flavored uh, CBD oil. Mm -hmm. uh, we could put uh, turmeric, uh, ginger, I and mean, we could put anything. Oh, when you're extracting, you're not using a like a solvent. It's not really; ex it's extracting, but it's more of a bonding process. Sure. So it is taking it out of it, but you know we're not extraction process. To me, is you're taking it out, and and here it is right here. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing, we're not taking it out. We're just it's we're transferring it into the oil and bonding it in the oil. So it can be used in the olive oil industry to to uh, to flavor olive oils. Sure. We can flavor yeah. butter. We can flavor ghee. Yeah. Uh, we, any any lipid we can add flavor to in a yeah. way that's never been done before. So and this what what has to happen in the hemp industry in order to really be successful, you almost have to find a niche and come up with some kind of new technology or some way of harvesting or processing or doing, you know, a value added to the end use of it to really be successful in this industry. 
So, you know, to me, it's like, you know, if, if I was an investor, I would be looking for these new technologies or new ways of doing things um, and not be a me too, because, you know, anybody that's building a ethanol extractor right now, there's already, you know, there's already more extractors out there then could supply, it's the same thing that's happened with the the, um, the CBD industry, uh, the growing of it. You know, now there's there's so many extractors out there that, um, you know, and the, the prices are dropping. You know, I could buy, um, the guy called me the other day, he's got 1,500 pounds of, uh, I think it's 14% CBD that's compliant below 0.3 on the THC. He said, I, I just got to get it out of here. He said, I'll give it to you for a dollar a pound. And so people just are, you know, and he won't ever grow again. Right. And, he, and that's what I hate about this industry that, you know, it just so many people got into it thinking they were going to make money and lost money and crashed the market. And anybody that built there, you know, like <clears throat> a lot of people got into it and they spent money knowing they could get, uh, you know, a couple years ago, you know, eight ten thousand dollars a kilo. So they they built their business model around that, and now those guys are in trouble because that same kilo that they thought they were going to get a minimum of eight thousand for, now uh, that same kilo is selling for five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. So unless they can sustain themselves until this wave goes by of all this excess, whether it rots in the field or, you know, I, who knows what's going to happen to it. But once that's gone, then you can have these contract growers like we're, we're doing and those guys will make good money. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, those people that lost money, I just, I, my heart goes out to them because those guys will never come back to the hemp industry. You know, after you get burnt like that, you're like the hell with that. You know, I lost 50 or hundred thousand dollars. You know, don't even talk to me about hemp ever again. Mm -hmm. So that's what, that's what we're running into on a lot. So well, I think that that's where the CBD market, like when you say that CBD stole the hemp industry because it did, yeah, it, tarnished, yeah. it tarnished so many farmers. <laughs> And it's here, I'm like, no, we need to grow fiber. And we have this opportunity for this whole yeah. new market that is much, much bigger. And yeah. We need to be looking at an agricultural crop if we're talking about helping all of America's farmers mm -hmm. and building an industry around it. You're not going to build, you'll build cottage industries around CBD, but you're going to have to grow it as a fiber crop or food crop. Uh, in order for it to become a mainstream commodity. What, what, real quick, we're almost out of time and I don't want to keep you much longer, but on the big scale, who do you see or where do you see product moving to? You know, who are our big buyers? Is it uh, certain countries? Is it industries? The food industry. Food industry is going to be big mm -hmm. because uh, it's a great source of protein. You know, you can make uh, milk out of it. Well, I wrote a story for John Rulak years ago. John uh, has that company, Nativa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I knew John when he was selling compost bins at the back of his apartment in Ohio, California. That's awesome. Now he's got a you know over a hundred million dollar business going. Yeah. But, 
to to really you know where the industry is where i see it going and said well we're mm-hmm. it, I think it's going to be food is going to be number one fiber will be number two but this thing i did for john rulak i wrote this story that he put in his his little book he wrote um it was basically you know you wake up in the morning and uh you pull your hemp sheets and your hemp blanket back and you know move your hemp pillar away and you step onto your hemp carpet and put on your hemp slippers go to the bathroom wash your hands with hemp soap brush your teeth with a a, a plastic uh hemp toothbrush plastic toothbrush yep hemp toothpaste you know you you shower with hemp shampoo dry off with a hemp towel and go downstairs and have a breakfast with hemp milk and hemp nuts um you know uh just uh, all the stuff you can do with you know and then you go out and get in your car that's made from hemp fiber Mm -hmm. and drive to a factory that where you're working to process hemp Mm -hmm. so i mean there's what people need to understand is anything that you can make from a hydrocarbon, you can make from a carbohydrate. If you think that, then that uh, 1937 uh, uh, Popular Mechanics magazine that said there's 25,000 uses for it. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, probably, there's probably, you know, there's probably that many uses for plastic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's where, you know, I, I see, uh, you know, the food industry really being big in it but the fiber industry and the um the carbon industry uh i I think are going to be big so i think that's where it's headed in the future i agree with you and i think it's very little what's spoken about right our construction industry our plastics are talked about a lot more but i think that yeah our next wave is definitely going to be around the food and And, and this is where we're getting support from our usda right is around exploring these alternative options for food. Yeah, I mean, we had, uh, we did a, uh, a study, a couple different studies years ago. One was feeding fish, uh, you know, hemp meal, which they did great on. And the other was using fiber in concrete instead of these plastic fibers. Mm-hmm. And it was coming back that it was stronger than, than, uh, than the plastic fibers, mm-hmm. you know, the petroleum fibers. So it's, um, it's exciting. I mean, just to see an industry in its, uh, you know, infancy and being part of, of, you know, helping, you know, make that a mainstream crop again has been just exciting. So, you know, when I, when I go back to Belize thinking that was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life, ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me because now, you know, I've got a legacy to leave my kids and grandkids, you know, being part of, of starting a, a whole new industry. I think what Thomas Jefferson said, and I'm paraphrasing, it's like the best thing a person can do for his country is to add another crop in the rotation of the field. So, um, you know, just being part of that, you know, and having a small part in it has been, um, you know, it's been a great story and uh, a fun ride. Makes you feel good. It should. It makes yeah. me feel good to talk about it. It's so exciting. And people say all the time, well, why do you even care? I don't have a business in the hemp industry, but I wholeheartedly believe what you're doing and what people along the same journey are doing is what will change our, our 
world, right? It will yeah. give our kids an opportunity and a chance. And yeah, I'm excited to see them get their hands on it and really make change. Yeah. I when, I, when I started, Manny, I had no idea that, I mean, I, the furthest thing from my mind was to be in the hemp business. <laughs> and, you know, here 28 years later, I am. And, you know, mm. I like to tell people I'm overnight success. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, just being, you know, being able to see the industry, you know, go from, you know, being a pariah to turning into a mainstream crop is really, um, it's been a great, great journey and a lot of fun just to watch watch it happen Have so to leave leave your legacy what would be the last thing that you hope to see happen and what's that time frame look like well I, what i tell people is we're looking at you know like i was talking to the five-year contracts but i think it's going to be you know it took soybeans 40 or 50 years to become a mainstream crop mm. i think uh, 20 years I think, I think 20 years and, you know, you'll have a lot of research. Uh, you'll have a lot of genetics developed for specific, um, you know, applications, mm -hmm. but, you know, I say 20 years, I'll, I'll, you know, hopefully I'll still be around to see, you know, how it turns out, but uh, you never know. Every day, I can't wait. Every day is, uh, you know, I wake up, I wake up and go, damn, I'm still here. Get another chance to do it right. Hey. <laughs> I I hope you f finish your timeline with getting out of bed, turning down those sheets, stepping into those slippers in your carpet. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's what I want to build a home. That's my my goal. I want a home out of hemp and yeah. grapes and yeah, the whole thing. So well, that would be cool. Well, thanks, Joe. Really, really appreciate you if anybody needs to get a hold of you or wants to how do they find you and reach out to you or learn more about your company well our uh our website and for some reason you can go on google and get it but just to type it right in for some reason i don't know GoDaddy's is having a problem today or something but it's uh halcyon it's h-a-l-c-y-o-n 420.com okay and uh my email address is joe at halcyon420.com so um awesome. and i you know i get you know i try to help everybody out and i get uh, calls and emails a lot so if you email me and i don't email back uh just keep going because i'll i'll eventually you know get to it so well and you attend quite a few events if people want to listen to you speak or get to know you you know i always encourage people attending those events like nor the no co event oh, right yeah. Yeah. Uh, um or what was the other one that you just recently went up well, to no co and then you've got the southern hemp expo which is going to be in i think where is it um it's it's like north carolina or south carolina i think uh uh it might even be virginia but uh but for sure yeah but um you know i go to a few of them i try to you know I try to keep busy and, you know, I do like going because it's just, it's a lot of fun just seeing a lot of the, my yeah, friends. meeting people, right? Well, so that's what I was saying is feel free to show up to those events, support them. They're great ways to build relationships and meet people like you. And so anyways, I'll definitely be attending and I really appreciate your time. Thank you very, very much. If there's anything I can do for you and you, your team, 
um, I'd love to collaborate. I'd love to continue to share what you're doing and share the message. And yeah, well, yeah. I, and I feel the same way. So any any way that I can help you, I'm you know or anybody, I'm more than glad to do anything that's going to help promote the industry. Cool. Well, thank you very, very much, Joe. We'll sign off now. And thank you, everybody, for watching and listening. Uh, if you do, uh, I guess, do enjoy or like. I hate this part, Joe, every time. Like, share, subscribe, and follow. We'll talk to you guys later. Thank you very much. See you later, Joe. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.